Well, good morning. Y'all are lively here. It's good. It's usually pretty quiet in Cambridge, so it's nice to hear some voices. Uh, I'm Travis, as Jack said. I am not Troy, although we're keeping it in the TR family. Um, Troy, Travis, close enough. Uh, so we're doing a little exchange through Advent that you all might to get hear a little bit of a harmony of voices uh, as we go through this series. I think as Troy put in the bulletin, we are new to the area. Uh, my family and I moved up from Philadelphia uh, this summer at the end of June, so still getting settled a little bit, uh, trying to prepare ourselves for an even colder winter. Uh, so <laughs> getting ready for all those things, but excited to be in the area, excited to be with you all. It's been great to get to know Troy a little bit and excited to be here with you this Sunday, and I'll be back in two Sundays as well. Uh, but if you would please stand for the reading of God's Word, you can find the text on which our teaching is based this morning in the book of Isaiah. You sort of open up your book, so if you don't have the Pew Bible, it's about halfway in. We're going to be in chapter 9, read verses 1 through 7. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them, as a light shown. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. We are continuing on in the Advent series that Troy kicked off for you all last week that we're calling uh, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, based off of the hymn that we sang this morning, uh, a hymn that draws out the themes, the heart, you could say, of what the hopes of the Christian life are all about, that our King, Jesus, would come to set his people free, to set us free from our pains from our failings, from our sins, from our disappointments, that he would actually come and give us not just freedom from those things, but also give us freedom to, freedom to rest, 
Freedom to have hope and comfort and strength. The hymn also points us to the hope that God would in fact be the imprint behind each and everything that we are longing for in this world. That all that we're hoping for, all that our hearts are drawn to, would ultimately be an echo of what we find in Jesus Christ in a much greater and deeper and truer sense. That he would be the thing behind all the things that we are seeking. And that in our seeking, he would raise us up, not by our efforts, but by his power, to glory with him. So in this series, we're going to spend time in several different texts, largely in the book of Isaiah, but also moving around a bit, to expand on these themes from this hymn. So that in this season where we can also easily, in the wake of Black Friday, looking forward to thanks, or not Thanksgiving, but looking forward to Christmas and all the, the gift mania that can go on in our culture, that in a time where it's so easy to put our hopes in things that fade, that instead we would find our hope in something that does not. That we would find our hope in the gift behind all of the gifts. A gift that's not only free, but that makes you free. Jesus, our Savior, our long-expected King. Today we are in Isaiah 9, a passage that draws us to look to Jesus as this long-expected light, is what our text is going to talk about primarily, for those that find themselves stuck in some pretty dark, painful places. As someone who brings us out of that long, dark night and leads us into the full warmth of day that is a life with God. So we're going to look at the text revealing Jesus in this light through uh, three things. Where the light starts, we'll look at verses 1 through 2 for that. Where the, or, sorry, what the light looks like in verses 3 through 5. And how it arrives at the end in verses 6 through 7. So where it starts, what it looks like, and how it arrives. But before we do that, would you bow your heads and let's pray and invite God to fill up our time together. Father, we bring our hearts before you now, this far into our service this morning, having heard from you several times, having heard you speak in your word, having heard songs that speak about you, knowing first and foremost that, that in the call to worship, we recognize that you speak first, that we're not bringing ourselves here somehow uninvited by you, unwanted here, but that we are, we are here at your invitation. We're here because you want people in your presence. You want broken people in your presence. You want needy, messed up people in your presence. You care about the lost and the broken. You care about the hard-hearted and the stubborn. You do not give up. And that is what our text shows us this morning. God, would you be clearly in our hearts through your Holy Spirit, the God who does not give up on us. Be that this morning in your power and by your grace. In your Son's name and by your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, or if you need a pew Bible, feel free to have that open. We're going to move through the text a little bit here, but we're going to start in verses 1 through 2, where the light starts. Verse 1 says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And then it says the people who walked in darkness, the people that lived in that area, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has 
shown. It's some of the northern tribes of Israel. If you were to look at a map of ancient Israel, you would see these are some of the most northern tribes. They're the farthest away from Jerusalem, from the center of the country. These two tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali, had been walking in darkness, our text says. Uh, a little bit of history as to why that would be the case. They were located along an area that the text calls the Way of the Sea. It's by the Sea of Galilee. And it was an area, there was a primary trade route that connected Mesopotamia in the north all the way down to Egypt in the south. This is where trade passed. It was a vital artery. This would be something like the Panama Canal. It's an access point between large groups of commerce that are passing between one another. And as such, it was a primary point of attack for any invading army. If you could control the trade, you could control the region, you would benefit from these things. And as such, this area along this trade route was the first to fall to the invasion of Assyria when Assyria invaded Israel. This is something that Isaiah in chapter 8, if you look back at chapter 8 and even earlier in the book, has been warning Israel would happen if they stayed continually hard-hearted, if they continued to walk away from God in the very place that God had given them, this special land, to be a light to the world around them of what life with God is like, if they dimmed that light so darkly that it was no longer evident, no longer fitting to be his representatives in that place, then the discipline, the kindness of God, both to the world and to them, would be to let them go in exile to be invaded and conquered, that they might have their hearts softened and come back to walking with the Lord, to receive his gentleness. But chapter 8, Isaiah says, they didn't want that. They didn't want to receive his gentleness. So they are part of the broader sweep of the northern tribes of Israel, apart from the tribe of Judah, that went into captivity, into this deep darkness, under the oppression and invasion of Assyria. If you haven't heard about Assyria before, they were a particularly brutal empire. They were not kind. They were not gentle with their enemies. This invasion would have looked extremely painful, awful, and ugly. And so they are living as part of a captive people under a regime that does not care for them and has likely butchered many of them and their families. They're walking in that deep physical darkness of oppression that's also tied intimately to their deep spiritual darkness that led them there, walking away from God. They were, our text suggests, the first to fall in this way, that their hearts seemingly would have also been farthest from God, and that their uh, physicality was also falling in connection with that. So this means that they have been in this place of suffering the longest. They've been in pain longer than anybody else. And yet the text draws us to focus on this place, Naphtali, Zebulun, Galilee, the way of the sea, the first to fall, the farthest from God in their hearts, as also being the first place where the light of God's grace comes back. God starts the dawning of his light, of his hope, coming back to a hard-hearted people, to a stubborn people who walked away from him time and again. God starts his light coming back where it first left, where people first turned their back on him. This text shows us a God who does not forget dark places. 
who does not forget people walking in darkness. He remembers them, and our text gives us the conviction that he doesn't just remember and say, I remember you, I don't like you. It says, I remember you, and I am coming back. Hear that for yourself this morning. As you think about your own personal darkness and anguish, some of the pains that you've experienced over the past few years, maybe over your life. Think about that maybe in connection as we think about the ways that our families are walking in darkness. I'm sure that if I ask you to raise your hand, and I won't, but if I ask, does anybody have some brokenness in their family, that everybody will be putting a hand up. That maybe even as we think not just about ourselves and our families, but as we think about our society and our country, after we think about a very long and painful year of gun violence, just recently in places like Chesapeake, Virginia, Colorado Springs, Colorado, Charlottesville, Virginia, later on or earlier on in the year in Highland Park, Illinois, Uvalde, Texas, Laguna Woods, California, Buffalo, New York, and I left a lot out. This has been a painful year after painful years of us being a people who are continuing to walk in darkness. Here, through our text, that those walking in deep darkness get remembered. They're not lost and forgotten, and they're not left behind. They're not forgotten because they were stubborn and difficult. They're not left alone. Isaiah 8 says, yeah, you were actually stubborn and difficult people. And if we look back in the book of 2 Kings, that book goes even further to show that they were not just stubborn, difficult people, but they were actually evil, wicked people that did terrible things to each other, not even to people who weren't like them. And yet God remembers them, not the good people. Not the people who have been keeping all the rules. It doesn't say God ignores them, but God remembers those who were not. Those who were deliberately walking away from him, who didn't care at all what he had to say or what he thought. People who were walking in a darkness, in a pain and a suffering of their own making. Where God might be right to say, this is what you get. But that's not the God of Christianity. That's not the God of the Bible. He doesn't see broken people walking in a darkness of their own making and say, that's what you get. He says, I'm coming back. The light comes back to broken people first. Think about that for your own life in this Advent season. For those in your life. God remembers people in darkness, even a darkness of our own making. And he brings his light there, not reluctantly, but if you were to jump all the way down to verse 7, it says the zeal of God will do this. God's not saying, fine, fine, come back, right? God is running to you. This is God the Father in the parable of the prodigal sons that goes running out to his son when he sees him a far way off the son who had walked away from him, who had squandered all of the money that he was given 
in worthless living, the father goes running out to him. He isn't reluctantly welcoming him in. This is the picture of God in this passage is a God who goes running out to broken people. In what way do you need to hear that today? In what way are you living out a Christianity that says God only loves me when I am good? God only loves me when I've had a good week, when I've been a good student, when I've been a good daughter or son, when I've been a good husband or wife, when I've been a good friend, when I've been a good parent. Am I living out of that Christianity instead of this Christianity? Where do you need to hear that God still has a heart for broken people? I want to invite you to let the Holy Spirit gently say that to your hearts this morning, this season. But I also want to talk about what it looks like when this kind of light comes to these kind of people. Let's look at our second consideration in verses three through five, what the light looks like when it comes back. The passage says that that when God's light comes back to dark places, it is nothing short of amazing. It's a a joy-infused, redemptive, restorative, powerful light that changes everyone and everything that it touches. Uh, Joy, maybe surprisingly, is the loudest characteristic I think we hear in this passage of what it looks like when God brings his light back to a dark place. Verse three, if you look there, is overflowing with joy. It says, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad or when they exalt, what you could say, when they are joyful, when they divide the spoil. That's four times joy is mentioned in one tiny verse. That is a lot of joy. It's a loud joy. This is what it's like when God's light dawns in darkness. It is joy. Joy, joy, and joy over and over again. God brings back joy. The darkness in your light is not just a cold light that God brings back. It is a warm light that God brings. It's being in the presence of his light and heat that you feel a warmth of joy. God does not leave you in a place where, okay, yeah, I, I, I get that I'm not a sinner anymore because of Jesus's grace. At least I still sin, right? But I, I'm forgiven and free, but I don't feel that great. I'm kind of just, I still don't like myself. No, God's light comes back into your life and says, joy for you now. He cares about joy. He's not giving up on joy in your life, even if you feel like you may have to. He doesn't need your strength to bring joy back to you. And it's a a light that's overflowing with joy because of what we see happening in verses four through five. It's not just some detached, wistful joy. It's a concrete joy based out of real things that change their lives in real ways. God promises to show up for them in life-changing, even world-changing power. If you look at verse four, we're going to see life-changing power at work. It says he is breaking their yokes. That's a way of describing the slavery that they were in, the oppression that they were in as part of a conquered people living under an oppressive regime. He is taking away their burdens as slaves. He is ending their oppression. He's getting rid of their beatings. That's what it's talking about, the rods and the staffs. He is making it so that no one hurts you anymore. He's not just bringing life-changing power. He's bringing world-changing power to bear on them as well. Verse 5, he is putting away any and all need for what we could call war gear. 
the things that you would use in battle for boots to fight in and clothes to fight in, clothes that were stained even with the signs of previous battles. All that is going to get put away. Not just put away, it's going to be burned up because you don't need it anymore. There will be no one and nothing left to fight when God's light comes back. Fear goes away. You can have this kind of joy. You can have a fourfold joy because there is no longer anyone to fear. There is no longer anyone hurting you. There is no more war. There's peace. God was talking about fixing the whole world in this passage. Yes, the light is dawning here with these people that walked away first, but it's going to spread out to the rest of the world. If there is no one and nothing left to fight, that means there is no more enemies anywhere. There's no more war anywhere. God has broken all these things and the world has been changed by the light that he brings. He's talking about something far more dramatic than just a personal little life change. Christianity is about far more than just a me and Jesus relationship. It is about a cosmic world, a universe changing truth and reality that changes us from top to bottom and draws us into those things. The light of Christianity is always calling us to more than we would settle for on our own. This is what it looks like when God's promised light dawns. It's joy, it's redemption, it's peace. And all of that happens because of what happens in verses 6 through 7. Let's look at our last point together, how the light arrives. Verses 3 through 5, what it looks like when you come alive with God's light in your life happens because of verses 6 through 7, the coming of a king. That's what those verses are talking about. It's a king who as we just saw in verses 3 to 5, is going to bring an end to all oppression, to all war. He is going to bring peace, who is going to bring light with all its joy and redemption, because this king is not just like any of the kings that Israel or anyone else has had ever before. He is, as verse 6 says, mighty God, everlasting Father, no one would dare in ancient Israel to describe any king that way. You might have done that in other ancient cultures and other ancient civilizations where kings considered themselves gods. You did not do that in ancient historic Israel. That was grounds for being put to death. To have God be calling this person God, to have the text be calling this king God means something radical is different, that God himself is actually going to come. Not just a person pretending to be God, but God is coming to rule in the way that if you were to look at Psalm 46... It tells us is the way we are to expect God to rule when he is present in our, in our world. Psalm 46 says that he is the kind of God that makes wars cease, that he breaks and destroys all the tools of war, just like our passage is talking about. It says he breaks the bow and shatters the chariots. It says he brings dawn to the darkness. Psalm 46 says God does these things, and Isaiah is saying the king does these things. Isaiah is promising something, something confusing in a sense, something astounding and shocking, that it's not just a light like this that we're going to see that gives this kind of joy and redemption and peace, but that the God pictured in Psalm 46, the God who does make wars cease, who puts things to rest, who brings light and life and flourishing, that this God was coming to be their king 
and do this thing for them. He's not sending a proxy. He's not sending an angel. He's not sending someone to tell about these things coming. The mighty and everlasting God is coming to do these things himself. He is going to change it all for everyone. This is astounding, not just because of the jarring reality of the God of the universe, who made all things just by speaking them into existence, is now coming to to one planet to help its people. It's not just astounding because of who that God, that king, would come to rescue first, the people not who were waiting for him, inviting him to come in, but those who had walked away from him. It's astounding for how the dawning light of God's presence as king would come to them through a child, through a son. Even more than that, through, as the text says in verse 7, a son to sit on the throne of David. That means that someone from the line of King David, a broken line, a line that had actually led the people of God farther away from God rather than to him, that that line would lead to this king. That someone from David's family would do these things. And yet, this king would also be able to describe as mighty God and everlasting father. So this king who brings light to our darkness is going to be both God and man. God and someone from the house that God promised to always have a son to sit on his throne. The answer to the darkness of sin and suffering in our world would come through a king who was both God and man. So that the light then would not just be for us, but would be one of us, human. God was wanting to bring the light on the inside taking on the darkness of our world at its source, which is the sin shrouding our souls in eternal darkness and night. And he would do this by becoming one of us, by joining with us, by joining us to him. This was how the light would dawn in the darkest of places, how it would dawn on sin itself through a king who was both God and man, who would not simply point to the light, but who would be the light in us, with us, For us, who would not just shine a light that would go out and that we would see, but would bring a light within that would come out from us. That we, as his creatures, would emanate with the light of God itself. This is something far beyond a little self-help religion. This is something far beyond feeling a little better about ourselves about doing some good things. This is about complete transformation of any paradigm we have ever understood life to be about. God is coming to bring light to darkness that it might emanate out from us. And this light, as John's gospel explains, the light of the world, as he calls it, was and continues and will always be Jesus Christ, our King, the God-man. God the Son made flesh. He is the promised one who brings the light of his life and his peace into our very souls by becoming truly one of us, by uniting us to the Godhead in truth, taking on the darkness of our sin and death in his own body on the cross, putting it to death there 
so that when the Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus Christ by faith, the light of Christ's redemptive resurrection actually comes inside. It moves into the center of our life and we come alive in it. We move from being those who could only walk in darkness in our sin, only knew how to walk away from God, to being those who for the first time actually know how to walk towards God. How to walk in the freedom of his light and his ways. It's through Jesus, God the Son, that God brings light on the inside of the Christian life. That's something that all the gifts that we might ask for this Christmas season cannot do. That the best possible gift you could ask for, the best possible trip, vacation, whatever it might be, it cannot bring light on the inside. All the things of this world at their best can only put decoration on a tree. Right? All they're doing is hanging ornaments and lights on the outside. God has come with his redemption in Jesus Christ that you might not have things stapled onto you, that you might not have a little righteousness and a little peace hung on the outside, that you might not have a little joy strung around the outside, that you might not have a little courage on the outside, but that from top to bottom, from the inside out, you might be a being of light who shares the light of God in Jesus Christ with others, that you would be radiant with it, full of the light of God. Bringing the light to the dark places of our hearts is precisely what Jesus came to do, even at the greatest cost to himself. This is Jesus going out to people you and me who were walking away from him. Jesus going out to people who did not care about him. Jesus running down sinners who didn't care to turn around when he called their voice. See the God of Christianity chasing you down. The God of Christianity becoming humble and lowly to be present with you. To help one tiny planet in the universe. Because that's where he set his heart's affection. In light of this, I want to invite you to do two things to know this light more practically in this Advent season. I want to invite you to invite the light in if you never have, if you have never known Jesus in this way, if you have never known God to be the God who chases down broken people and sinners, not because they finally got their act together, but just because he loves you and is not going to let you go. Turn to Jesus for the dark places of your life, for the dark parts on the inside, for the you that you just can't look in the mirror anymore. Ask him to bring light there, to change you from the inside out. And if you have invited Jesus in, if you have known him in this way, welcome him in anew in this season. Come back from the ways that you are walking in darkness. Let God's light shine on uncomfortable places in your life. Places where you said, I don't want to hear what God has to say about that. I'm not comfortable talking about what God thinks about that. In fact, I'm not interested and I think God is wrong. Let the light of God shine on places that you may not think are places he deserves to be because you see that this is the kind of God he is that cares for you even when you don't care for him. And secondly, I want to invite you not to just let the light in, but to know this hope in a tangible way to sit in it and really let it sink in. 
To not just be here for a few minutes on a Sunday and then we go our way and we never think about it again for the rest of the week, for the rest of our lives, but to actually let this soak into our souls until the hope of being made new, being completely forgiven, having the light of God brought within us so that we are truly changed, having all of our darkness turned to light, all the brokenness that we have forgiven by God, done away with, put away with at the cross, that that reality and the hope of the resurrection that one day you will fully see his face and you will shine with the glory that reflects his glory, sit in that until that brings you joy. Until all the anxiety you're feeling in your life this week starts to bump up against a little bit of this joy. I'm not saying that anxiety doesn't have biological connections to it. I have anxiety. I've gone through anxiety a bunch of times. This is really important that we start to let our lives, our worries, our fears, our disappointments wash up against the reality of what we have in Jesus, the reality of what will not change. The light only overcomes the darkness. The darkness does not win. Let the darkness get swallowed up even just a small way by the light this season. Sit in the light and let the light wash over you. If you need help getting to that point, then I offered this last week as well, that I put together some thoughts about what is it that we really have in Jesus? What does it mean that I have for my life? I just, it's, uh, it's called the I Haves of the Gospel. Um, it's on this little ramshackle website that I maintain from time to time uh, called the drakepassage.org. If you want to look at that as a starting place, but I invite you to, whether that or anywhere else, get a book, start reflecting on what do I really have in Jesus? Let the gift that God gives really be a gift this season. Don't put so much of my weight on what I have ordered from Amazon and what I am hoping is going to be what I think it will be for my life, but ultimately it will be just like last year's gifts, something I'm kind of like, nah, it was all right. I'm looking forward to next Christmas, though. Get, get something more tangible. Know Jesus in this way because we have a richness in God that surpasses all understanding and all darkness. Know that light this Christmas because it is yours now if you put your faith in him. Would you pray with me? I want to invite you, just give you a few minutes to, to do business before the Lord in your own heart with some of these things that we've talked about, to thank him for bringing light to your own darkness, uh, to maybe confess some of the ways that, that you're walking in the darkness of your own making, and to just ask God to bring us more into his light, to bring his light within. Let's take a few moments in prayer, and then I'll close us. God, I ask that you would hear these prayers by your grace because we know that you are a God who brings light to darkness, who comes running to a people who have been walking away from you, who wraps us up in your joy and your love and your peace when all we've known for so long is darkness and war and anguish. Would you be the hope of our hearts in a new way? Would you set our hearts aflame with the warmth of your love this season that it might overflow from us to those around us? And so I ask that you would hear these prayers and that we would turn our hearts 
to you as you have taught us to pray, Jesus, saying the Lord's Prayer now.